Well, uh, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for an opportunity to gather together and to worship you, and we're thankful to hear from your word and pray for my brother and his uh, ministry that you just continue to bless uh, that ministry and you continue to raise up men and women who honor you in their lives in total, who know the truth and can share that truth with others around them. And now we pray your blessing upon our time this morning, and uh, we are just so thankful again for the privilege to uh, study your word, open your truth to us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we're in an ongoing study of the book of John, and we just finished up last uh, week, uh, chapter 8, and we're about to enter into chapter 9. So I thought this might be a good spot just to stop and take a quick break from that study and address an issue that's been on my heart for some time, and that is the issue of biblical joy. Uh, so that's where we are going. But before we go, I've got to re, uh, go back just a little bit. I need to address something, make a clarifying statement to something that I said last week, because a couple people have come to me very concerned over what they perceived I meant by something I said. So I thought I probably just ought to address it uh, straightforward. As you know, in in John chapter 8, Jesus is confronting uh, the religious leaders of Israel. And I said in that sermon, I said there are only two kinds of people in the world, uh, the children of God and the children of the devil, those who have repented and placed their faith in Christ and become part of the family of God and everybody else. And everybody else really is a part of the family of Satan. Satan is their father. They do the deeds of their father. They speak lies just like their father does. They believe lies because there's no truth in them. There's no place for truth in them. And that's very straightforwardly. I said what the Lord Jesus has been telling these religious leaders over and over again. Although they thought they were children of Abraham, although they thought uh, that God in heaven uh, was their father, Jesus told them very clearly in verse 44 of chapter 8, straight-up statement, you are your father, the devil. And the reason you can't understand what I'm saying, uh, the reason that you can't hear uh, the words of God is because you're not of God, verse 47 of that chapter. And then I said that's the reality of what's going on here. The religious leaders of uh, Israel, again, they think they're following God when in reality they're following Satan himself. The false uh, religious systems like apostate Judaism here always hate the truth. They fight against the truth because the kingdom of darkness hates the truth. And then I said this, and this is what uh, people were concerned over. And I said, just stop and think about the reality of persecution around the world. There's nobody who is persecuting Islam, nobody persecuting the Roman Catholics, nobody persecuting the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Hindus, the Buddhists, etc. Because Satan is already the ruler over the realm of these false religious systems, and Satan would not divide against himself nor fight against himself. I said the only kind of religious persecution that's going on in the world is always against biblical truth and those who follow Christ, as it's always the kingdom of darkness that attacks the truth, and the truth is found only in the Word of God, the Bible, God's truth, true truth, which is completely rejected in the day and age in which we live. Then I said, but again, we're not surprised by that because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Therefore, the world under its ruler of darkness, their father Satan, has abandoned the truth and substituted lies everywhere. And because men would rather believe lies than the truth, because that uh, the truth exposes them, men hate the truth because their deeds are evil, because they love their sin. And it's always lies and false religious systems that assault the truth 
uh, constantly, and that's what the religious leaders of Israel were doing. Uh, the self-righteous Jewish religious leaders that are part of apostate form of Judaism who belong to Satan, again, like all other false religious systems under the realm of that uh, kingdom of darkness, they are attacking the ultimate truth-teller, uh, the person of Jesus Christ himself. Now, I thought I had set the context uh, very well, but evidently uh, I, I didn't do that well enough. Uh, we were in a discussion of the truth. And when I said there's nobody who's persecuting Islam or nobody persecuting the Roman Catholics or nobody persecuting the Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Hindus, Buddhists, etc., in the context of a discussion about the truth, what I meant was there's nobody who's persecuting Islam for the truth. There's nobody who's persecuting Islam over the truth or any of the other, other groups that I just mentioned because they don't possess the truth. They deny the truth. All of those groups deny what the Bible says about God himself and about the person of Jesus Christ and uh, about the way of salvation. And when I said the only kind of religious persecution that is going on in the world is always against biblical truth and those who follow Christ as it's always the kingdom of darkness that attacks the truth, I guess in hindsight what I should have said was the only kind of true religious persecution that's going on in the world is always against biblical truth. I am in no way denying the Holocaust I am no way denying the Armenian genocide. I am no way denying the uh, Chinese government and their persecution of the Uyghurs uh, in their country or any other kind of physical persecution over one group, uh, by one group over another. But all of these groups are not and were not being persecuted over their stand for biblical truth. There are other factors in each one of these other events uh, that led to or causes, uh, caused their persecution. So again, that's all I meant. So again, in the context of chapter 8, the self-righteous religious Jewish leaders are a part of an apostate system of Judaism who belong to Satan, and like all other false religions uh, under that realm of the kingdom of darkness, they are attacking the truth. And in their case, they're attacking the ultimate truth-teller, uh, the person of Jesus Christ himself. So if I cause you any angst or undue concern, I do hope that you'll accept my uh, deepest apology. I pray that I'll be able to speak with uh, more clarity, and I hope that explanation is helpful. I do appreciate your input uh, when you feel like I've not sounded a note clearly, so don't, uh, don't take offense to that. If you have a, something, come and talk to me. That's the only way we can uh, make sure that we clear up the communication, all right? Now, the study this morning has to do with biblical joy. Obviously, we're living in a very uh, troubled world uh, that seems to be spiraling deeper and deeper into darkness and chaos, uh, a world that uh, presents us many issues that could, for us as uh, Christians, easily lead to anxiety and fear, and many things that cause us, could cause us as believers to, to lose our joy if we're not careful. Now, I'm not going to give you a list of that. They're, they're self-evident. You're familiar with them. And ultimately, the list is growing on a daily basis. So this morning, I thought it would be, again, just helpful to address this topic. Listen to the Word of God. Bring encouragement to all of our hearts from God's Word. Again, when we're living through difficult, confusing, turbulent times where there's absolute chaos everywhere. Now, to be honest with you, when I sat down to start to do this, I looked back at my notes, and I was really surprised because I, I thought it was a lot longer ago. But I was a little surprised, and I looked back and found in my notes that I did something similar to this just about two months ago. And when I preached a sermon entitled, Not by Fear, but... Uh, the just shall live by faith, back in early September. But so much has happened in the last two months, I'm going to return to this subject. So you can kind of consider this uh, part two of uh, part one sermon, right? 
uh, in that past sermon about uh, living not by fear but by faith, I, I try to encourage us all by, again, remembering things that we know. That's one of the preacher's responsibilities, just to remind us of things that we, we already know. And, and I spent a whole lot of time. I had three points, and they're all the same point. There's a God in heaven, right? And he's in charge of everything. Uh, the creator, the owner of the universe, the one who rules from his throne in heaven, the one who reigns and rules in absolute power and absolute sovereignty. And in spite of any appearance to the contrary, the fact is God is still on his throne. God is still the Lord of history. God is still the ruler of the nations. He is the one who directs the affairs of all men and all nations. He is the one who is in control of the destiny of the world. He is the one who is indeed uh, ultimately guiding the affairs of the nations as they again appear to be uh, hurtling uh, madlong towards destruction. He is the one who, out of his perfect purposes, with respect to glorifying himself and the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who will work out all things together for our good, for those who have been called by him, for those whom he has loved eternally. And listen, we need to believe that. We need to believe that. Because it's true. And it's true, again, that our God rules the universe as king in the absolute sense of the word. He is in absolute control of everything, every aspect of our lives. Listen, he is even in control over the wicked in this world. Therefore, we are commanded biblically not to be anxious and not to to worry, not to be fearful, because, again, God is in absolute control of every event and every aspect of our lives. Again, that allows us to go to bed at night, lay our heads down, and go to sleep and not worry. Not worry not be fearful. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4 and 6, be anxious for nothing. I'll give you the Greek lesson. You know what the word is, right? No thing. What does that mean in the Greek? Same thing it means in the English. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, anxiousness or or fretting, worrying, indicates a lack of trust in God in God's wisdom, in God's sovereignty, in God's power, in God's providential control over our lives. It it really, anxiety and worry is really demonstrating a lack of trust in God's goodness. So in a world that is dominated by fear, we as his people are are called to believe the truth. Again, just as it says in the book of Habakkuk, uh, the just or the righteous shall live by his faith, Habakkuk 2 and 4. It's repeated several times in the New Testament, and very easily it could be translated: the righteous or the just will live. The righteous or the just will live by his trust in God, because ultimately that's what faith is. Faith is trusting God. Faith is trusting God. Faith is trusting God in His Word to carry out His promises. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, as it says in the Book of Hebrews. And again, as God's people living in a fallen world, we are called not to live by fear. In fact, we can't live by fear. We are called to live by faith. Again, faith in the one who loved us, faith in the one who gave himself for us, faith in the one who is indeed the Lord of glory, who has risen from the dead, listen, defeating both sin and death. Therefore, it would be absolutely foolish for us to trust in or to hope in anything this world has to offer to us rather than trusting completely and absolutely upon the person of God and his most precious word, submitting ourselves uh, uh, entirely to what God says is true, willing to stake everything, even our own lives, upon him and his truth. Amen? 
All right, so sermon number one, uh, a couple months ago, God's on his throne. Part two, sermon number two this morning, therefore be joyful. Right, that's it. God's on his throne, be joyful. So again, I want to speak to the issue of biblical joy. Because I'm concerned there are many things in the world that can make us readily lose our joy as believers. And I want to put forth the argument this morning that joy, true Christian joy, is available for the Christian and, in fact, a duty. A duty. It's a command of Scripture. For us as believers to live out in the midst of extremely difficult and turbulent, turbulent, troubling uh, times and circumstances. Now, there really are any number, and I literally mean that, there are any number of places we could go to begin to uh, kind of unpack this uh, topic, but we're going to turn to the New Testament. Turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verse 16. I chose this because it's easy for me to exegete. Here it is. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says what? Rejoice. I can't hear you. Rejoice always. Now in the Greek text, the adverb actually comes first, so it's always rejoice. It's a command in the present tense. So it should be always continue to rejoice or always be rejoicing. The uh, authorized version translates it like this. The King James says this, rejoice evermore. I like that. So in a troubled world, a disturbed world, a world full of sadness and distress, a world full of anxiety, fear, the Christian is, by way of command of the Scripture, to rejoice always, to always be rejoicing. Now that seems, on the surface, somewhat impossible. And the next statement I'm going to make, it's not my intent to be irreverent, but that command to rejoice always seems impossible and maybe, again, perhaps even absurd, absurd to, to, to obey. And again, I'm not meaning to be irreverent, uh, just considering all the difficulties that we encounter in a fallen world. But nevertheless, it's the divinely inspired command of the Scripture that has to be obeyed, that must be obeyed. And, and failure to do so would be disregard for the Scripture's clear instruction. Therefore, and you're not going to like this next statement, so I'm just giving you a heads up to, to brace yourself. Therefore, it would be sinful obedience, sinful disobedience on our part not to do so. It would be sinful disobedience not to rejoice always. Now, the command here in First uh, Thessalonians 5 is not unique. It's not an isolated command. I mean, I, I sat down at the beginning of the week, and I printed out, I, I, I think, honestly, five or six, seven pages of Be Joyful, Old Testament, New Testament. Obviously, we, we can't go through it all. But it's not a unique command. At least 15 times over in the, the book of Philippians. So turn back to the book of Philippians. Paul uh, talks about joy. Philippians 2, we'll just dive in there, 2.17. Philippians 2.17, but, if, uh, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service to uh, your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. 
Paul says, no matter what the circumstances are, even if I'm a a prisoner, even if if I'm about to give my my life as a sacrifice in order to get to the gospel, uh, get the gospel to you, I want you to rejoice. I share my joy with you, and you share your joy with me. Philippians 3 and 3, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write you these things again is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard to you. Look over at Philippians 4. Philippians 4 and 4. Philippians 4 and 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. So the command of the Scripture is for the believer to have joy. And there really should be no circumstance or event in our life that should diminish our joy as a believer in Christ. Now, again, I understand that sounds somewhat hard and perhaps even impossible. Nevertheless, it is what the Scripture says by way of command. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always, or always continue to rejoice. Always be rejoicing. Rejoice evermore. Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Uh, Again, in my study, I went back and looked. There's probably, I mean, there are literally hundreds uh, of uh, Scripture uh, that you can find throughout the Word of God to have uh, joy, called uh, the believers called to have joy in all situations. Hundreds of them. Uh, uh, Psalm 5 and 11, let all who take refuge in, thee, in you be glad. Let them uh, ever sing for joy. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, you who are upright in heart. Psalm 68, 3, let the righteous be glad. Let them re- exalt or rejoice before God. Let them rejoice with gladness. Isaiah 35.10, the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, sorrow and sighing will flee away. Uh, Isaiah 61.10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul, my soul will rejoice or exalt in God my salvation because he has clothed me with garments of his salvation and wrapped me in the robe of his righteousness. Again, just hundreds of Old Testament uh, exhortations for the believer to have joy in God in all situations and in all circumstances. We are commanded by way of the Scripture uh, to even be joyful in the midst of suffering uh, for the Lord. Suffering for the Lord. If you want, you can turn there or you can just listen. But in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, makarios, is the word it means to be happy or blessed. Uh, R.C. Sproul defines it like this. He says it's a word that not only communicates the idea of happiness, but also profound peace, comfort, stability, and great joy. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11 says, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me, uh, uh, Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. So they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Rejoice and be glad. There's a similar passage to that over in Luke. You don't need to turn there. Luke 6 says, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil uh, for the sake of the Son of Man. Verse uh, Chapter 6, Luke 6, verse 23, Be glad in that day. Leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven for the same way they, uh, uh, their fathers used to treat the prophets. Right? We, we need to take our brain out, put it in a sink, wash it in the Word of God, put it back in and get it reprogrammed. We need to start thinking biblically in a world that has abandoned biblical truth. We need to have a biblical understanding of what God says joy or where joy is found and what joy is even in the midst of our circumstances. 
1 Peter 4.13, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. You know, it's an imperative. It's a command. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may, jo- you may rejoice with exaltation. It's, there's a lot of words there. I, I mean, it, it, the King James puts it like this, that you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Literally, you could render it rejoice with joy overjoyed. Right? Somebody shortened it down and said rapturous joy. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, rejoice with overjoying, rapturous, exceeding joy. I mean, because uh, that you may see the revelation of his glory. So he said, look, the degree that you suffer for the sake of Christ, that should cause your rejoicing to increase. Uh, rejoicing, again, joy should be a constant expression for the believer in light of the reality of his, uh, his or her uh, eternal salvation, even in the midst of persecution for Christ. Because, and this is the key, salvation joy, which is what we're talking about, is something not based on circumstances or emotion, but rather something that's based on the truth. It's based on the Word of God. Salvation joy is not based on circumstances or emotions, but rather it's based on the truth. Now what about when difficulties come? Just generic difficulties, sometimes not even associated with uh, being persecuted or associated with Christ. And I'm going to give you an example out of James and somebody could come and argue, well, in the context, it may have to do with persecution for Christ. Okay, it could. I won't beg that question. But it also, perhaps, is not associated with persecution. James 1 and 2. James says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now, again, just listening to that statement sounds somewhat counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because that's not the way you don't. <laughs> Let's back up. We are Americans, we don't suffer. If the store shelves are not absolutely full, I'm calling the manager on the store intercom. Even if I don't want to buy what's not, what's not available, it needs to be full when I walk in there so I can feel good about myself. Right? Take your brain out, put it in the sink, soak it in the Word of God, put it back in, get it readjusted. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, again, it seems counterintuitive, But the word consider is an imperative. Because again, joy is not the natural human response to trials. But, But when we as Christians go through any experience in life, we're called to be joyful, to consider it all joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, complete, not lacking anything. So again, the command of the scripture is to we are to have joy even in difficulties and trials in life because it's the command of scripture, okay? Having joy in the midst of all the various trials in our life causes us to have our self-centeredness stripped away. It causes a break in our pride. It causes us to realize, it's going to be a shocker, we're actually not in control of everything in the universe, We're actually not even in control of many things in our life, although we think we are. We're not in control. God is. So trials humble us. They make us more dependent on God. And I would bet you, if there's anybody in the room here who's ever gone through a trial, I will bet you that it has increased your prayer prayer life, amen, which has gotten you into the presence of God, the place you and I need to be desperately. So when testing comes, testing produces endurance. It has a perfect result that you may be perfect, that you may be more mature spiritually. 
And if you're more mature spiritually, that means you're being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief, as the psalmist says. Now, Paul spent his entire life after his conversion at one point or another being persecuted for his faith in Christ, for his proclamation of the truth. And again, he's the same guy that wrote that passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 16, Rejoice Always. Always be rejoicing. He's the same one who's penned uh, the words in front of us, Philippians 4 and 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I'll say rejoice. So here's a test question. When is the time of rejoicing? I'll give you a couple seconds to think about it. When is the time of rejoicing? Answer, always. Okay, I'll give you question number two. How often are we to rejoice? When I was a college professor, I tried to keep it simple, right? Simple for you to answer a question, simple for me to grade. There you go, just one. (laughs) Same answer. You catch on about about the 47th question, it's the same answer. It's always A or whatever, right? When you're suffering... Always rejoicing, even when being persecuted, even when being alienated, even when evil is being spoken about you, even when you're being ostracized for your faith in Christ, or misunderstood, misrepresented, uh, mistreated. Even though you're going through various trials in your life, difficulties in your life, the command for the believer is to rejoice always, to always continue be rejoicing. Now the question is, how is that possible? How is the possible? Uh, John MacArthur offers this as a very helpful uh, insight. He says, true biblical joy is possible, and here's why, because biblical joy comes from God, not merely from a superficial emotional response to positive circumstances. Christian joy constantly flows from what the believer continually knows to be true about God and about his eternal saving relationship to him, regardless of his circumstances. Supernatural joy is from the Holy Spirit. And thus Paul listed it as an aspect of spiritual fruit. And you're familiar with it in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc. So true biblical joy is not so much as a, of an emotion as it is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the result of the person of the, the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit within a true believer, and joy, therefore, is a gift of God in response to biblical truth. Christian joy constantly flows from what the believer continually knows to be true about God and about his eternal saving relationship to him, regardless of circumstances. So again, when Paul says rejoice and rejoice always, rejoice at all times, cause one writer to say this. He says that uh, the emphasis is that true Christian, true joyful Christians will always have a deep-seated confidence in God's sovereign love and mighty power on behalf of his own and his providential working of all things according to his perfect plan. Therefore, the writer says there's no no event or no circumstances of the Christian life apart from sin, that should diminish the Christian's true joy. And that's, that's true. Because our joy comes from God as a fruit of the Spirit, and it comes from a confidence in God's sovereign love, God's mighty power on behalf of us who belong to him. R.C. Sproul says this, When the Bible gives the command, do not be anxious, but rejoice always, at all times be rejoicing, over and over again in the pages of the New Testament, he says the idea of joy is communicated as an imperative as an obligation. Paul setting forth the duty, not making a suggestion. 
We never think of happiness in that way. When we are unhappy, we think it is impossible to decide by an act of the will to change our feelings. We tend to think of happiness as something passive, something that happens to us over which we have no control. It is involuntary. Yes, we desire it and want to experience it, but we are convinced that we cannot create it by an act of the will. Sproul goes on and he says, based on biblical teaching, I would go so far to say that it is the Christian's duty and his moral obligation to be joyful, and that means that failure of the Christian to be joyful is a sin, that unhappiness and a lack of joy are, in a certain way, a manifestation of the flesh. Now, we don't like that, but that's the truth. Now, when the Bible comes and gives the command, Rejoice always, it does not mean that there are never any times in the world that we cannot be filled with uh, sorrow. It's never uh, uh, inappropriate to be filled with sorrow. Because, again, Jesus himself was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53 and 3. Ecclesiastes 7, 2, it's better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Matthew 5 and 4, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So there are perfect, legitimate times of experiences where mourning and sorrow and grief uh, are legitimate, that they're not sinful. Uh, Romans 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There can be certain events in our lives that can traumatize us and traumatize those around us where our hearts are broken, where we cry over those events. I might remind you that Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus Even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, he still wept over the death of Lazarus because death is an enemy. So pain and sorrow uh, are genuine, real emotions in a fallen world, and showing somebody sympathy or compassion or understanding at at the appropriate time, uh, at a difficult time, is right. But even those difficult times, those difficult circumstances, don't affect the believer's deep-down abiding joy. And Paul gives a, a balance to that, I think, in Second uh, Corinthians uh, 6.10. He says, as, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Second Corinthians 6.10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So again, how do we understand that? R.C. Sproul again says this, The heart of the New Testament concept is this. A person can have biblical joy even when he is mourning, suffering, or undergoing difficult circumstances. This is because the person's mourning is directed towards one's concern, but in that same moment, he possesses a measure of joy. Why? Because the Bible says, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Right? Never allowing circumstances to affect the believer's deep down abiding joy. Now, you know what? This principle is really interesting. This principle is very well understood in the early New Testament church. And this is actually how people encouraged each other very early on in the New Testament church with this principle. Every time they met each other, you say, well, how's that? Well, it was the greeting they used. And I think this is really interesting as I sat and studied it. Think back. Don't turn there, but just think back. Matthew chapter 28. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The text says, as the day began to dawn, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the grave. There was an earthquake. The angel rolled away the stone. The guards fell down like uh, dead men. The angel told the women, women who were seeking, he's not here for he's risen. 
The text says the women run off filled with fear and great joy and report, report the events to Jesus' disciples. And I'm going to read out of the King James Version. Because I like it. Matthew 28, verse 9. As they went up to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. All hail? He was Jesus British? Is this like a bad B movie? Right? All hail. Now, if we were to modernize it, which we want to do, we always want to bring it to the contemporary setting, right? If he was an American or a Westerner, and from out West, he'd at least said howdy. Right? Howdy, partner. Hi. Jesus met them saying, all hail. Well, I turned over to the extra spiritual version. I mean, the ESV. Somebody will come and talk to me about that. I guarantee you. <laughs> ESV is not more helpful, not any more helpful. Behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. That's pretty much filled with warmth, huh? <laughs> so which is worse, all hail or greetings? I don't know. We got the one who everybody thinks dead, the one who is now dead and now is alive. You know, people tend to dead people stay to, tend to stay dead. This guy doesn't do that, right? Not this guy. He's risen from the dead and he greets the woman. The word there in the Greek is actually kario, means to rejoice, to be glad. It means to rejoice exceedingly. Behold, Jesus met them and said, "Rejoice!" Exclamation mark. Rejoice. And that would be the right thing for the Lord who's just defeated sin and death to do when he meets his followers. Rejoice. Remember the council of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, verse 22. It seemed, it says, the text says, then it seemed that good that the apostles and the elders with the whole church had chosen men from among them and sent them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and Judas called uh, Barsabbas, Silas, the leading men amongst the brethren. Verse 23 says, when they sent letter to them, uh, the, uh, by them, the apostles, the brethren who are the elders, that the brethren, uh, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings, right? Rejoice. Rejoice. We have a reason to rejoice. We have a reason to rejoice always. We have a risen Savior. We don't serve, there's no dead Jesus on the cross behind me. It's empty with intention. Because he's not there. He's not there. We, we, have, we have one who's risen, one who's defeated death, one who's defeated sin on our behalf. Therefore, we should be joyful always. We should always rejoice. And listen, because he defeated sin and death, we who follow him, we shall also defeat sin and death. He's our great hope, our captain, our champion. Now, there are any number of reasons besides that most magnanimous uh, reason, magnificent reason. Other reasons, biblically, that we should rejoice. It's a borrowed list. It's not anywhere near exhaustive, but I thought you might want to just hear some. And I can only give you the headings. They're just too much material. What are other reasons? Like we needed another one besides we serve a risen Savior who defeated sin and death on our behalf, and we're going to defeat sin and death because of him and because of our union with him. If you needed some other reasons... Number one, we should rejoice always in appreciation for his righteous character. Don't try to write him down unless you do shorthand because you're not going to get him. You're going to be frustrated with me, and I'm going to say go back and listen to the tape. So just listen. I gave you the punchline up front, right? 
defeated sin and death. Number one, we should rejoice always in appreciation for God's righteous character. Number two, we should have a constant joy and appreciation for God's redemptive work, which derives from his gracious, loving, merciful compassion. Uh, Number three, we should rejoice in appreciation of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our life. Number four, as believers, we should rejoice always because of the vast array of spiritual blessings we possess. Number five, we should rejoice always, or have joy in God always because of God's providential orchestration of everything on our benefit, on our benefit right, right? Romans 8 and 28. We should be joyful always out of gratitude for the promise of future glory. Philippians 3.20, write that down and look at it later. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly await a Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me tell you something. If we could just understand Philippians 3.20 a little bit more, if we just thought on this verse a little bit more, our joy would increase exponentially. Our citizenship is in heaven. We don't belong to this realm. We, we are ambassadors in the truest sense. We represent a different king in a different kingdom. Number seven, answered prayer should be a source of constant joy, uh, constant joy for the believer. Number eight, appreciation for the gift of God's word should cause us to rejoice. Number nine, privileges of genuine fellowship in the body of Christ can bring joy, should bring joy, continual joy for the believer. Number ten, true believers can't help but express their joy at the saving proclamation of the gospel. Just like it came to us, it came to those in the early church. Acts 15.3, therefore being sent out on their way uh, by the church, they sent, uh, they, Paul Barnabas, and the other believers were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When the gospel comes and it's received, it's a great joy in our heart, right? Amen? But again, let's look deeper, a little bit deeper in this Philippians passage, Philippians 4. And again, it says, rejoice in the Lord, Always. I mean, at all times, be rejoicing. And again, he says, I will, I will say rejoice. So again, it's a biblical imperative, a biblical command for us to be always rejoicing as believers, always joyful. And when you look at that command, the word always leaves no room for not rejoicing. So rejoice in the Lord always, not just some of the time, not just part of the time, not just periodically, not just occasionally. But rejoice in the Lord always. And as a good preacher always does, he repeats himself. Again, I'll say rejoice. Now, this is interesting coming from a guy who's writing this letter when he is on a five-star hotel beachfront property on some nice warm island, right? Oh, maybe not. Where was he when he wrote this letter? Prison. Prison. And he's really facing the uh, um, possibility of martyrdom. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 17, right at the top, you can... See that there. So he's in prison. He's facing martyrdom. And he calls the believers here in Philippi to be joyful. To be joyful in spite of his circumstances. To be uh, joyful in spite of their circumstances. So again, the question is, how is that possible? Again, look very carefully what the text says. Rejoice. Here it is. In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. So again, that's the key to the Christian's joy. The Christian joy for the Christian is something much deeper than, again, anything the world can ever produce or give you by way of experience or understanding. Because when we're talking about true Christian joy, we're talking about something that is a supernatural joy. Again, that joy identified with the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Something deep down, something that happens as a result of the relationship with Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit. Fruit happens. 
Joy is not a gift of the Spirit. Like, uh, not everybody has the gift of preaching. Not everybody has the gift of giving or the gift of administration. But everybody, if they're a genuine believer, they have the, they have the fruit of the Spirit. Everybody who's a genuine believer has love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, etc., and so forth. Because that's what the Holy Spirit is producing inside of us. And the more we grow in our relationship, the more we grow in our understanding, the more we grow in our understanding of Christ, the more fruit we manifest. More love, more joy, more peace, more patience, etc., and so forth. But the key, again, to the Christian's true joy is found in its source, which, again, is in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. R.C. Sproul, if Christ is in me and I am in him, that relationship is not a sometimes experience. The Christian is always in the Lord, and the Lord is always in the Christian. And that's always a reason for joy. Even if the Christian cannot rejoice in his circumstances, even if he finds himself passing through pain, sorrow, or grief, he can still rejoice in Christ. We rejoice in the Lord, and since he never leaves or forsakes us, we can rejoice always. That's good, isn't it? Even if the Christian cannot rejoice in his circumstances, he can rejoice in the Lord. And since the Lord has promised to never leave us or forsake us, we should be joyful always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, the command of the scripture. Uh, John MacArthur has this uh, in uh, referring to the supernatural Christian joy. He says, it isn't a natural joy. It isn't a worldly joy. It isn't something that people have because they've put some positive spin on life. Here's what it is, he says. It's the experience of well-being that springs from the deep-down confidence that God is in perfect control of everything for my good and his glory. The Christian can be on top, positive, triumphant, victorious, not because of his circumstances, but because of this deep-down conviction or deep-down confidence that God is in charge of everything. God is sovereign. God is in charge of everything, and that, again, it's all moving for my glory, for my good and for his glory. Therefore, all of us can respond to everything in life with joy if we believe that God is affecting his glory and our good in that, right? That's true biblical joy. That's good also. True biblical joy is always found in response to the sovereignty of God. Now, we may not be able to rejoice over our circumstances. We can certainly rejoice, however, in the God who's loved us, right? The, the God who's loved us, the God who's given his life for us, the, the God who is uh, controlling all of the circumstance, circumstances and events of everything in our life, right? We can rejoice over him. Our God who's unchanging, have you noticed that everything changes like by the moment in the world we live in? Our God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he's the one who loved us so much that he sent Christ into this world to secure our eternal salvation. That's why we're to place our confidence in him, not in our circumstances. And that's why we are, listen, we are to look up. Turn over one book. The book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Now, a, a better translation would be since. Since you have been raised with Christ. And that, that word uh, uh, raised up means to raise together. It's really raised together from mortal death to a new life, a blessed life, a life dedicated to God. It really means to be co-resurrected. Since you've been co-resurrected with Christ, 
Since in Christ you've been given a new life, eternal life, which is not just merely endless existence, but it's a qualitative difference in time by the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. You might remember back in uh, Galatians 2 and 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave, gave himself up for me, right? That's a new life in Christ. So he says, Paul says, since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand. So the affection of our heart as a believer should be heavenward. And keep seeking is a continuous action. So the continuous action of the believer should be heavenward. There should be a preoccupation continually with the eternal realities. Those that are now ours in Christ. That should be the, the bent of our life as believers. And our preoccupation with heaven is really a preoccupation with the one who reigns there. It's a preoccupation with him, his purposes, his plans, his provision, his power. Again, all of life is to be seen through eternal perspectives. Since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, heavenly things, heavenly values, things such as tenderness, kindness, meekness, patience, wisdom, forgiveness, strength, purity, love, etc., and then what's this? Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I, I wish we had time to further develop this, but we don't. What are we seeking? Well, who are we seeking? We're seeking Christ. Where's our joy found? Answer, in Christ. Christ, the one in whom's hidden all the wisdom, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The risen, glorified Christ, who is at this very moment seated at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father is a place of honor, it's a place of dignity, a place of majesty, an exalted position of power, and it's a place of what? Sovereignty. Sovereignty. Just listen, Psalm 110, verse 1, Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Matthew 26, verse 63, Jesus kept silent. The high priest said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in clouds of heaven. Peter addressing the crowds at Pentecost, Acts 2 and 23. This man delivered it by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, putting to death, and God raised him up again, putting him, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Verse 32 of that chapter, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Verse 33, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out forth, he's poured forth this which you see, both both what you see and hear. Peter, addressing the Pharisees in Acts chapter 5, after being persecuted for preaching Christ. Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom he had put to death by hanging him on the cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Stephen, when he's being martyred, Acts chapter 7, verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Paul Romans 8, 34, describing Jesus. 
Verse uh, 34, who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And because that is true, Ephesians 1 and 20, which he brought about in Christ, which he raised him up from the dead and seated him at the right hand of, at his right hand in the heavenly places. I mean, we can just go on and on. Hebrews 1 and 3 is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his power, the upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 8.1, we have a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Hebrews 10 and 12, having been offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, he sat down at the right hand. Hebrews 12, uh, the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter, speaking about Christ, 1 Peter 3 and 22, who is at the right hand of God? Christ, right? Christ is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels, authorities, powers being subjected, had been subjected to them. Right? Since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of power, majesty, authority, sovereignty, the right hand of God, a place of honor. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above not on the things of the earth, right? Salvation joy comes from the reality of understanding the truth of who our God is and where Christ is. It's not based on our circumstances. It's based on understanding, believing, and living by truth. True truth, biblical truth, the sovereign God's truth, the reality that God is on his throne, the reality that Christ is seated right, ne- seated right next to him at his right hand. Set your mind on the things above. Now, set your mind means to think about have this disposition. It's a present tense, so it just means continually. Have this something. Something that you should be doing presently always <clears throat> is to have this inner disposition that you're always thinking about things above. You're always thinking about things above. You're always thinking about things where Christ is at God's right hand. Not setting your mind on the things of the earth. Boy, how much time, how many times, don't raise your hand, how many times do we violate that principle? Set our mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Because when we start to set our affection on the things of the earth, or our mind on the things of the earth, or think about the things of the earth, not only do our heads explode, but we start to struggle with our joy because our focus, our attention is what? Misplaced. When we're preoccupied with Christ, when our focus is heavenward towards Christ, towards who Christ is, towards what Christ has done, towards what Christ has promised to do, then we have our focus right. And again, it's the exalted Christ that sits at the right hand of the Father. It's the exalted Christ from where all of our blessings come from. He is the fountain of blessing for his people. He is the source of our joy. Again, the one who loved us eternally came into time. The one who defeated sin and death and has promised to take us with him eternity into eternity. That's whom our focus should be upon. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Verse 3, for you've died and your life is hidden with God and Christ. I mean, we're absolutely secure in Christ. Our union with Christ. There's nothing this world can do to us. Why do we worry about it? Now, we struggle with indwelling sin. We got that. We went through the book of Romans. We're working on that issue, right? Trying to deal with indwelling sin. But because the penalty of our sin has already been paid for by Christ, sin can ultimately never lay claim to us again. Because there's absolutely, see if you remember this one, there's absolutely therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, amen? Man, if you don't walk out of here with 116 different reasons to rejoice, you're not listening. 
the most important one is the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, we have more than enough reasons to rejoice and to rejoice always. Rejoice because your sin is eternally forgiven in Christ and nothing and no one, no matter how bad your circumstances might be in time, can ever separate you from his love. That's reason to rejoice. We can go to the book of Revelation. I have it in my notes. I'm deciding right now whether or not I should turn there. But in the book of the Revelation, it says, when, it says, verse 4, it says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you will be revealed with him in glory. Well, when's he going to be revealed? He's going to be revealed at his second coming. Oh, first time he came as a suffering servant. Second time, John says he comes and he's like this. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. He has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he may smite the nations with it. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and tread the wide press of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We need to look at him. No disrespect. No no irreverence. He's not the baby in the manger. He's the conquering king. He's the Lord of all lords. Back to Philippians 4 and we'll wrap it up. That's the truth. That's why Paul can make the audacious statement in prison facing martyrdom Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Look up. Look to where your joy comes from. Look to where your help is. It's in the Lord. That's the sphere of rejoicing. Again, who the Lord is, what the Lord has done. We certainly can't rejoice in our government. We certainly can't rejoice in our education system. Certainly can't rejoice in our health care system. Certainly can't rejoice in anything else in this evil world that is temporal, that is uh, corrupt, under the prince of the power of the air. Part of a corruption which God through Christ has promised to one day do away with. But we can and we must rejoice always. At all times be rejoicing. It's a matter of choice. A matter of the will by way of command. Something we can do, something we must do, something, listen, something we have to train ourselves to do. Right? We're, we're battling sin all the time in our body and our flesh, all right? Our un, unredeemed humanness, I got that, right? But what we need to really battle is, is negative attitudes. Sour, complaining, miserable, look like your best friend just died. That's what the stereotypical picture of a Christian is. But that's not tied with reality. It's not tied with biblical truth. Christians should be the most joyous person on the planet. The basic characteristic, characteristic of the life of a Christian should be joy. Because we, the people, have the most to be joyous about. Again, eternally loved of God in Christ, forgiven our sin, our names written down in the Lamb's Book of Life, headed towards eternity with God in Christ, been removed forever from the realm of condemnation, never ever being able to be separated from the love of God. That's why the Apostle commands the believers to rejoice always. We have to learn to live above our circumstances. Because 
temporal circumstances are never going to provide you any kind of temp- any kind of a permanent uh, source of joy, but Christ is. We need to look up, think upon Christ, focus upon Christ, set our affection on heavenly things, worship Him always. It's an attitude, a choice, a command. A bound duty, Spurgeon said. So how do we perform it? I'll give you just a couple thoughts. We might do ourselves very well, not only to obey the command, obviously, but we might do ourselves very well if we just obeyed Paul's admonition in Romans 12. It says, do not be conformed into this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Just a thought, but we might want to turn our TVs off more and pick up our Bibles. Just a thought. You might want to think about disengaging uh, from social media. I'm not sure what kind of eternal value that sewer has for anybody. If you want to get sucked down into the vortex, you want to get sucked down into the milieu of the uh, fallen culture, then um, watching TV and being on social media would be a great uh, avenue for you to head down. Look there at Philippians 4. Not only is it Paul's command to not be conformed, not to be shaped into this world's image, but be transformed in the room of your mind, it might be helpful if we just uh, listen to Philippians 4 and 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything excellence and anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. So that's where we need to set our affections on, right? Uh, We need to meditate on the things of the Lord, turn our back on the things of the world, turn our attention to God and Christ, keep looking upward, setting our mind on true things, honorable things, right things, pure things, lovely things. None of the things of the world. So when we find ourselves in a position where we're depressed, overwhelmed, downtrodden, annoyed, unhappy by our circumstances, unhappy by the evil corruption that is all around us, we may not be able to do much about the circumstances and about the fallen world, but we can make a choice to rejoice in the Lord always. We can make an intentional choice to turn to the source of our joy, We can make an intentional choice to set our affections upon him and believe the promises of the one who has come and loved us eternally in time, promised again to take us with him in the future. We can make an intentional choice to return to the source of our salvation because all of the circumstances in life in a fallen world are nothing compared to the joy that awaits us because of Jesus Christ. And you know what's a real joy killer? It's not fear. Look at verse 5. Let your, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Verse 6. Here it is. Here's the joy killer. Verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Anxiety is the great joy killer for the Christian because we're commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. And we're also commanded to be anxious for nothing. We're commanded to be anxious for nothing because verse 5 says the Lord is where? The Lord is where? I can't hear you. Near. How the Lord is near. 
Be anxious for nothing but in prayer, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Nothing's too difficult for him who loved us. Again, the world may be in utter confusion, but during difficult, challenging, troubling times, when the sand literally seems to be shifting under our feet, we make ourselves vulnerable to an unstable world when we stop obeying the Scripture and stop trusting God. We lose our joy, start to fret and become anxious when we stop looking up to where our hope and our help come from. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for our time here together in your word, and we're mindful of the words of the Savior himself who pointed out to us the sinfulness of the folly of anxiety. In his proclamation of truth in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, For this reason I say to you, don't be anxious for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what your body, or for your body or what to put on. He said, life is more than food and the body more than clothing. He said, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, neither do they reap, nor do they gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you, much, aren't you worth much more than they? And which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to your lifespan? Anxious about clothing? She says, observe the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil or spin, yet even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed himself like one of these. Christ said, don't be anxious about any of these things. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? He says, look, the Gentiles, the fallen world, they, they seek for these things, but your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Therefore, the command of the Scripture, the command of the Sovereign, the command of Christ, he says, seek first the kingdom, your kingdom, and your righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Again, the command of the Savior says, don't be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Help us to be a people who rejoice always in you, our God, and in the Lord, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I say, help us to rejoice. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.